We ask that we would be open to hear your word. That the ultimate goal of worshiping you would be on our hearts. That we would know you and love you and worship you and see you as a God of grace. As Christ on the cross out of love for us. Father, bless this time. Work through the Spirit that we may worship you more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, we continue with our series in Ecclesiastes. This is the wisdom of Solomon. Basically coming and and talking about what life on this earth, life under the sun, really looks like. To give us wisdom for how we should think about this life. So last week we talked about the pursuit of pleasure. And how the pursuit of pleasure is fleeting unless we first bring our sorrows to Jesus Christ. We lay them at his feet and only then can we pursue real joy. Today we're going to be looking at the busyness of our lives. The busyness with which we spend day after day our daily lives dedicated to just surviving in this world. Because we are a busy people. Americans, we're constantly told that Americans are busy people, maybe the busiest people on the planet. Now, I used to hear that, and I used to not understand it as much as I do now. It was like, okay, maybe we're just, we like being busy, we like talking about being busy, we feel important about that. Uh, I think I didn't understand how busy Americans are until I met all of you. (laughs) You are busy people, and it's overwhelming sometimes when you talk about how busy you guys stay. And... I think the reality is that we are busy and we are weary and tired with all of this busyness. And so Solomon's going to give us kind of a sobering uh, look at what all this busyness amounts to. And actually how we might escape this busyness to the point that we would actually uh, be fruitful and purposeful people in this world. So today we're going to be looking at three things that's going to talk to us about the busyness of our life, the busyness of this time. We're going to see, first of all, that life in this world is going to be kind of a time where we are resigned to be busy and maybe even doing the same task over and over and over and fruitless in some of that toiling and effort. And then Solomon's going to teach us that we have a natural longing for eternity in our heart that wars against all of this stuff that is fleeting. That we're trying to find eternity but cannot. And then finally we're going to see how God actually meets us in the midst of all of this busyness and toilsome work and gives us real purpose. So we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 3. Go ahead and turn there. You're probably going to recognize Ecclesiastes 3 as the lyrics to a song by the birds, but... Alas, you can hum along if you like as we read, but uh, let us learn about how we can pursue eternity in the midst of what seems like a really toilsome life. So read with me Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, 
a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what is driven away. Our first point here is that this life is weary and it is a repetitive cycle. So if we look at verses 1 through 8, we see this, this daunting list of all of these tasks that are put before us. And we're reminded that we have a lot to do, and there's these dichotomies. Sometimes we're doing one thing, sometimes we're doing the other, and we find that the times just flip-flop back and forth. That times of laughing suddenly slip into times of mourning. That all of these times are in themselves fleeting. They vanish really quickly. One time turns into the next. So today is going to be different than tomorrow. And we can't actually hold on to any of these things forever. That life in this world is transient, as we've talked about throughout this series on Ecclesiastes. So what is the wisdom of that realization? That everything is fleeting, that there is a time for everything, and that it is but a brief time. One of the first things we need to recognize is that we need to be ready for change to come upon us. Recognizing that nothing in this life is permanent. We cannot cling to the past. We cannot cling to the present because that is foolishness according to Solomon. Everything in this life is fleeting. And so we're going to be tempted to cling to these things. To cling to the good times in our lives to cling to relationships that aren't the way they used to be, to cling to kind of the best days of our lives, the golden ages in each of our lives. But the problem is that when we cling to those experiences, when we cling to those moments, we end up crushing them and mangling them in our hands. We hold them so tightly that actually blessings of the past, things that were good things that we really saw as blessings from God become idols in the present. Things that we start misusing. And things that actually start poisoning the present so that everything is judged, everything is critiqued by the standard of that thing in the past to which nothing else uh, can stack up. We must accept that we take things loosely. We hold the present loosely, recognizing that it can go. We hold the past loosely, recognizing that good times can come and they can go, 
but we cannot cling to them or else they will destroy not only the past, but the present as well. Let's recognize that we cannot cling to these things. As Ecclesiastes summarizes in this brief kind of pithy proverb, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For this is a question not from wisdom. We can't constantly be looking past to the past before us. We have to be in the present. That the present is the only place we can be and we should look for the present, the blessings of today, today. That is the first wisdom that Solomon gives us here. All right, but he has, he has more for us here. In a different vein, are you ever, ever resentful that the world just seems to cycle and cycle and cycle the same old thing over and over? Do you ever get upset that you wash the car and then a bird poops on it the next morning? It happens, and it's frustrating. It's like, oh, I, guess, I guess I have this again. Do you ever get frustrated that you clean the kitchen, you do all the dishes, and then four hours later, it's a disaster again? Or you find yourself mowing the grass, and mowing the grass, and mowing the grass, never seems to stay cut. You just are, we're on this cycle, constantly, ever on the cycle. And we can try to romanticize these verses. I think that the song that these verses are taken from, it kind of romanticizes them. That as if Solomon is kind of saying, oh, like, isn't, aren't these seasons great? That summer, summer's great, and fall, fall has its own special beauty. Winter's great as well. That he's kind of just embracing the beauty of all of the different seasons. Solomon is not romanticizing the cycle here. He's saying that this is wearisome. That there is always a time for something. Can we ever get a break from all of this? Why won't it just let up that we can not have a time to do anything? And that all of the tasks that we do, we just have to do them again and again. Life has become wearisome for Solomon. It starts to wear on him after a while. And I'm guessing that probably for some of you, life has begun to wear on you. You do all this stuff, and you do it again and again and again. And the question is, why can't we just suck it up and accept that life is like that? Are we just kind of snotty 21st century Americans who are acting like prima donnas, and we just need to get over that? In some senses, maybe. But I think for the most part, biblically, Solomon would say, no, you don't just have to get over it. Which takes us to our next point. Biblically, he says that humanity, we are eternal beings. And we are eternal beings smacked out against a world and bodies and a life that is fleeting. And we can feel the disparity between that. It doesn't feel right to us. When we look at all these things that are ever-changing, it doesn't sit well because that is not the way it's supposed to be. First of all, all of our work is not supposed to be as vain as it is. We're always planting, healing, breaking, doing all the things on this list, and yet it seems that we don't actually get anywhere. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. After a lifetime of looking at all of these things, 
Solomon looks back and he thinks that he has merely survived. He has passed his days, but he doesn't have much to show for it. And there's a certain bitterness when he says that this is God's business that he has given to man to be busy with. He sees the business that we have here and he doesn't like it. He's upset about it. Because it, it is a great evil that we go through all of this work, all of this toil, and it doesn't get us anywhere. He recognizes that. He also then moves on to verse 11. Everything is beautiful in its time. But there is a great evil there too that everything is but beautiful in its time. When we look out through the world, we see in its time the beauty of things as they're supposed to be. We see the vibrancy and the beauty of youth. Or maybe we see the kind of perfection of a flower in full bloom. We see a garage that is perfectly organized. Those are beautiful things. We like those things. And we feel that, that that's how things should be. And that's how things should stay, but they do not. They don't stay that way. We know all too well they do not stay that way. And so we have this kind of mark of sadness that all of these things that we feel ought to remain permanently are gone, and they are fleeting. We see that same principle work at work in our own bodies. We see our bodies start to break down. Our hair turns gray. Our hair falls out, right? That is a great evil, as we know too well. It shouldn't happen. We recognize that, in some sense, we are supposed to be glorious and, and beautiful creatures for eternity. And so to see that mar us, we don't like it. Go to verse 11 again, the second half. He, God, has put eternity into the hearts of man yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Solomon is kind of almost blaming God for doing this to us, that he has put eternity in our hearts, but put us in a world where we can't actually grasp eternity. He has kept us from it. That he gives us these eternal longings and then puts us in a world that doesn't match up to them. And so Solomon offers kind of a, a consolation that isn't much of a consolation. Verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his, all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now if we take this verse out of context or just, just look at it. We talked about last week that there is kind of a certain amount of uh, dignity that he gives to pleasure. But in context, this isn't actually that happy of a verse. It's a consolation to the fact that maybe the best we can expect in this life is that we get kind of a small amount of fleeting pleasure. And that we content ourselves with that. But for people with eternity in their hearts, it doesn't feel right. It feels like kind of a token blessing that God would give us this gift but keep us from what we know our hearts really long for. Solomon is kind of being a, a, a realist here and a, a bitter realist. Maybe we'll just take our pleasures and be rejected from there. 
Which takes us to our third point. How does God meet us, this eternal God in the midst of this fleeting world, which does weigh really heavy. These are heavy things to talk about. How does God meet us? Well, Solomon, he goes on to speak about God in true terms, but in a way that actually is, doesn't seem very faithful or very uplifting. Look at verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So Solomon recognizes that unlike humanity, God is not fleeting. What he does is permanent and lasts forever. And accordingly, we should fear God because of that. That he doesn't just kind of throw things out there. What he does matters and it lasts. And then in verse 15, he goes on to recognize that God is actually behind everything that happens. He's behind the times. He's making sure that these seasons come and go. That the, that which is, the present, looks very much like the past. The future, he recognizes, it's going to look like the past. And why? Because this sovereign God keeps bringing it up again. He pursues that which went away. He keeps kind of plopping the past back right in front of us and we have to do it all over again. Do we notice what Solomon's saying here? He's saying that, God, I recognize you are all powerful. That you can do eternal things. And I recognize that you're always in control. And then he asks, God, why don't you do something about this? Why do you keep just making the same thing happen over and over and over? Why don't you change the world? Why don't you intervene with some eternal action that would make this world less fleeting? And the question is, could Solomon be saying that? I think there's part of us that says, no, he can't be saying that. He can't say that. He's a this is scripture. Why would you say that to God? Why would you ask those questions of God? <coughs> Accusing him, maybe demanding from him, not liking what he's given you? That's not allowed. That's not allowed in scripture. But the thing is, that's actually one of the token characteristics of wisdom literature like this. Is that wise people come to God and ask him these kinds of questions. That's what Job did. Job comes to God and he says, are, are, you, are you really good? Are you really a righteous God if you're just doing all this crazy stuff to me and I didn't do anything wrong? Are you a good God? You can ask God those questions. You're allowed to ask those questions. But we have to be prepared for what God is going to say. We have to recognize that God asks questions back. And he has some hard questions for us, just like we have hard questions for him. And he says back to Job, Who are you, Job? Can you command the lightning? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Can you loose the belt of Orion? Can you adorn yourself with splendor and majesty and glory and might? 
we ask the question, how does God meet us in the midst of a fleeting world? Well, the thing is, when we come to him with accusations and throw things at him and are angry at our God, he can throw those accusations right back. And so, if Solomon is throwing these accusations at God, how would God respond? What questions would he have for Solomon? He might ask, well, I don't know, Solomon. Why, why is the world so fleeting? Why is the world like it is? Why is there sorrow and death and sadness and weeping and mourning in this life? And if we answer that question, it, it is humbling. Solomon is probably going to think about his 700 wives and 300 concubines. And that's where we aren't neutral characters in this life. We aren't just neutrally subjected to what God has done. This life is the life that it is because in our sin, we choose things that are fleeting. And we have rejected this God and are in rebellion against him. So that God, when he created us, he created us to be eternal. Eternal beings. That's why we have eternity in our hearts. We have eternity in our hearts because from creation, this is a remnant. It's a sort of archive, remembering when God created us to be eternal beings in an eternal world with an eternal creator. Those things last and they stay there in our hearts. And in humanity, in, in Adam, all of humanity, chose the fleeting nature of sin over the eternity of God. We chose what is fleeting over the eternal. And we picked sin over God, and as a result, we picked futility over eternity. And when we sin every day, we make that decision again. Every time we sin, we make all of the good things in this world more fleeting. We corrupt them so that we turn our relationships into more feeble relationships. Our loves become more fickle. Our pleasures become more frantic and out of control. We're actually introducing corruption into our lives. And so, as a reflection of that, God, by an eternal act, decided to kind of show us what we've done. To show us that in choosing sin over God, we resign ourselves to a fruitless and vain life. We resign ourselves to death and to hopelessness. Now, that is, that is heavy. And that is what we get from God when we come to him with accusations. That is how he meets us. He meets us with the realization that this world is this world because of sin and because you've rejected me. That is a hard reality to, to bear. But when we come to God differently, he meets us differently. Solomon came with these kind of accusations and he leaves with this kind of heavy heart that says, all right, maybe I just need to be obedient and obey God. That's, God. That's man's duty. It's man's duty to God. That's just what he has to do. 
and he says with a heavy heart that maybe there are all these troubles, but I have to obey God anyway. That's the only other option. Now, I want to say that we are not in the time and the season of Solomon anymore. We are not in that time. We are in the time of Jesus Christ. That God has decided to meet us, not with accusations, but actually with compassion and grace and sympathy. He has moved into this world that is fleeting. And by one eternal act that endures forever, to which nothing can be added and nothing taken away, God has met us in a fleeting world. He has met us in a life that is sorrowful and is painful. And in the person of the Son, he came and became Jesus Christ and submitted to this fleeting world, the vanity of the world. He was born Christmas. He came for a time to die, Easter. And in between those, he had a fleeting life just like we have. If we think about what Jesus experienced during his lifetime here. He taught crowds and crowds of people, and even his own disciples oftentimes had no idea what he was talking about. He was healing thousands and thousands of people, and yet illness remained. He would raise people from the dead, only to have them die again. He would feed thousands upon thousands, and he could not overwhelm hunger. He was working and living in the midst of a vain and sin-ridden life. And so, he realized, or he, didn't realize, he knew, he knew from the beginning. Um, <laughs> he saw that you couldn't just kind of wash over it temporarily. You had to change the world. He had to kill sin. He had to kill death. He had to kill the curse. And he did that by dying on the cross. Amen. He brought those things down with him. Yes. He brought death to death. He killed sin. He killed the curse in his death. And then he rose again from the dead, bringing in this new kingdom, a new life, a new world, a new life that is eternal, a new world that is eternal, that isn't subject to the futility that's talked about in Ecclesiastes. I've said that a few times. I've talked about this new kingdom. But let's, let's talk about it more intentionally. What is this new kingdom that God has come to bring? All right, the nature of this kingdom. First of all, this kingdom, when Jesus rose from the dead, was consummated, or it was started spiritually. And this kingdom is in our midst spiritually. But when Jesus comes again, it'll be made physical. So we're in this weird overlapping time where we are preparing spiritually for Jesus to make this kingdom real and tangible and physical. Now, what does that mean? It means that when you do things that are spiritually valuable, Jesus is going to come back and make those tangibly, physically, and real and they'll be eternally valuable in a real kingdom. They won't just be spiritual. So let's say that if we mature as believing Christians, if we become more humble, more loving towards Christ, more obedient towards our Father, 
in this kingdom, this world, we're going to look like idiots. And people are just going to think we're dumb, that we're wasting our lives. But in the new kingdom, when Jesus comes back, we're going to be proved to be people of glory and honor. More so because we did those things spiritually. The things that are important spiritually are going to be important in the new kingdom. So that if you give to the poor in this life, according to the world, you'll just become poorer. You'll have less money. But when the kingdom comes, you'll be richer. All of that will flip-flop. That is the new kingdom. All of this stuff will flip-flop and change. Everything that is true spiritually become true physically. That is what Solomon was waiting for. Where you would do the spiritual things and they would actually have a result. A result that would last forever. Where you could do things and they wouldn't just fade and flee, disappear like vapor. He was discontent with the world where that was true. And Jesus Christ has started spiritually a new world where everything that is of spiritual value is eternal. So the question is, how do you access in this fleeting life eternal things? How do you work towards eternity? How do you find eternity in this life? I have three things. There's, there's probably more, but we'll talk about three. Uh, first of all, we move away from sin. Sin is the currency of a dead world. We stop wasting our time with it because we recognize it for what it is. It is perishing. It's just enslaving us. It's getting us deeper in debt. It's poison to our souls. And we stop spending our time on it because we recognize that in this new, in this new kingdom that Jesus is going to bring, sin is just going to bring despair and despondency. We're going to hate sin in the new kingdom. And so as we hate sin now, we actually reflect this new kingdom and live in the midst of a new kingdom. So I'd encourage you. We sometimes act like sin is no big deal, which the cross has rendered sin as no big deal. But I would encourage you, keep fighting that sin. That you would have joy. That you would know the true value of the kingdom of God. We're being kept from those things by continuing in sin. Alright, second. We're going to do the things that the kingdom says are valuable. A whole new set of things. Things like giving to the poor. Things like serving those who aren't worth anything. Spending time with people who have no social clout. Or doing like the spiritual disciplines like praying, reading our Bible, worshiping. The reality is that in this world, those things are worthless. They aren't going to get you anywhere in this world. Just take some of those. Prayer. So you just waste all of your time talking to this guy and expecting things to happen. That's just a waste of time. Or tithing. Really, you're just, you're just throwing your money away. You could be spending that to save for retirement. You could be doing countless other things in this life. Serving people. You're just working and not getting paid for it. 
Yeah, that seems like a waste. And honestly, we still think like that. Because we're, we're not embracing the kingdom. We struggle to embrace the kingdom. I struggle to embrace the kingdom. We struggle to see these things as real. But these things are really valuable. Not according to the world, but according to God. And when God sees those things happen, he is pleased. Those are the things that make him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Those are things that last into eternity. And so the question is, how might you abandon some of those things that are a real waste, that are of no worth in the kingdom of God? How can you replace those things with things that are really valuable? I long for us to be a church that does things that are of eternal value. And that might mean kind of throwing off some of the dead weight, the things that aren't bad, but just keep us from having time to commit to the kingdom of God. God tells us that, that we will know real peace, we'll know real joy when we do that. And we'll be doing things that are eternal, not just wasting our time. All right, last, and this is the hardest one, the hardest one. We just do normal things to the glory of God. All right, so you still have to wash your car. You still have to do the dishes. I recognize that we can't just kind of run off and be Mother Teresa's and throw out our whole lives. Some of you might be called to do that, and if you're called to do that, you should do it. But there's going to be things that just seem mundane in this life, and you're wondering, how do you get value out of those? And that's where, as we've talked about, the Christian life is all about the heart. The new kingdom centers around the heart. So it's not about just what you do. It's about doing it with a heart of worship. The heart is where you worship. Where you express your, your value of things. And you can sweep the floor with a heart of worship. And that sweeping of the floor is not just some toilsome, wasted activity. It is something that transcends this world and becomes eternal. Now, I recognize that is hard to do. How do, how do you sleep? How do you sweep the floor for the glory of God? We're going to be exploring that more as we talk, go through Ecclesiastes. But that is the thing that, that makes this world eternal. And that makes a difference. So two people can be sweeping the floor with completely different motives and therefore completely different consequences. One is eternal and one is vain and just going to slip away. But that doesn't just mean that it has to do with, uh, with the mundane activities. The heart is also central in everything that we do. So that we can do the Christian things, but without a heart of worship, and then those things are just as fleeting as everything else. Or we can avoid sin, but do it with the wrong motives, just to prove that you're a good person, you're better than other people. And that's actually just as sinful as everything else. It's all about the heart. And that's where in this new kingdom, the one who matters is the King Jesus. This kingdom is, is a kingdom for a king. That we serve him. That we honor him. That we love him. That is what it means to be true citizens of a kingdom. To love and serve the king. And why should we love and serve the king? 
Because we have been loved and served by the King. This Jesus Christ, he came into this fleeting world. As Solomon would accuse God, God just doesn't do anything. No, God did something in Jesus Christ. He broke in and eternally did something of which nothing can be taken away or added. Jesus Christ has brought this new kingdom out of love and compassion and mercy on us. He's given us a real gift that that fits the eternity that is in our hearts. And accordingly, we love him as our king. We serve him as our king, as the one that we love because he loves us. Let us actually embrace this king and become people who aren't just resigned to the fleeting things of this world, but able to worship him in all things and therefore find that everything has value. Everything is eternal. Everything becomes of the kingdom when we're connected to this eternal king who loves us and died for us. Let's pray.